0: hello and happy new year welcome to the gifted life podcast where we have conversations about organ tissue and eye donation you can always find us at thegiftedlife.org I'm Lori Steele.
1: I'm Joey Boudreaux.
0: I'm Sarah
2: Blakemore. And today on The Gifted Life,
1: we'll be talking about how one little boy had a global impact on donation.
2: And transforming how we think about stressors.
0: All that and more right here, The Gifted Life. You don't want to miss it. And we're thankful for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Here we go. On The Gifted Life, we are so honored uh, to be joined by Mr. Reg Green. Hey, Mr. Green.
3: Yes, hi. We certainly appreciate you. Nice to be on the show.
0: Thank you so much. The Nicholas Effect, if you've Googled it, um, some of you may remember uh, a vivacious seven-year-old a tragedy and talk about donation. Um, So, Mr. Reg, I just want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your hero, Nicholas Green?
3: Well, uh, Nicholas was uh, just seven years old. And uh, we were on uh, a vacation in uh, Italy. We were driving down the uh, main road south from Naples. Uh, it was night, but not, uh, but not uh, very late. When a car pulled alongside us, and instead of overtaking um, through the night, there came the sound of these loud, angry, savage voices um, obviously telling us to pull over. Um seemed to me that if we did stop we'd be completely at their mercy. So instead I accelerated. Uh, they accelerated too. Um I floored the car, they floored theirs. And the two cars raced alongside each other um until after what seemed quite a long time, but probably was was quite short. Uh, there was a deafening explosion, and the passenger window behind the driver was blown in, uh, obviously by a bullet. Maggie, who was who my wife, who my wife uh, who was sitting on the front seat, uh, turned round immediately to make sure that the two children uh, were safe. That's Nicholas, eight, seven, and. Um, his sister, uh, and Eleanor, age four, uh, both appeared to be sleeping peacefully. Uh, it seemed a blessing at the time. By now, however, I was doing what I'd hoped, which was to pull away from the other car. And uh, from seeing them alongside, I saw them next in the wing mirror and then through the driving mirror, And then they disappeared back into the night. And I continued at top speed because who knew um, whether they might uh, uh, come back or not. So we raced along. um, And as it happened, there had been uh, an accident on the road. The police were there. An ambulance was there. So I pulled in. when I opened the car door, the interior light came on. And Nicholas didn't move. And I saw his tongue was sticking out, and there was a slight trace of vomit on his chin and I knew then that something very terrible had happened um He was bundled into the uh into the ambulance, which was there for the the other p- p- purpose as i as i said um and taken to a little hospital um where we were crushed to hear that uh, uh, he was too badly wounded for them to uh, operate on. Um, instead, they uh, they put him back in the ambulance and drove him uh, another two hours to a much bigger hospital in Messina, in Sicily. And uh, we followed on. When we got there, the... Um, it, what looked like the entire medical staff of the hospital had gathered in the ICU, not mincing words at all. The chief neurologist said to us, uh, the situation is very traumatic. We knew then that um, our worst fears were being realized. They said that um, they couldn't uh, operate at the time because he was too weak. Uh, and the hope was that he would be able to recover um and is uh, strongly enough for them to be able to to operate on him in a day or two's time. however, that never happened and uh, he was declared brain dead uh two days after the
1: initial shooting so so this was nineteen ninety four of course and and the concept of brain death. You know, was was uh, still, you know, it it had been around for a little while, but people didn't really know much about it. Had, was this the first time that you were ever presented with it or, or had understood it?
3: Yes. Um, uh, Maggie knew immediately. Um, and um, it, it was she who said, uh, well, now that he's gone, uh, shouldn't we donate the organs? And uh, I said, yes. And that's all there was to it. We uh, uh, they seemed relieved that uh, uh, when we told them uh, this is what we wanted uh, to do. Um, in in uh, Italy at that time, were had the lowest organ donation rates in Western Europe, um, and Sicily, which is where we were, had the lowest. Rates in in Italy. In in other words, the uh, organ donation was um, uh, was almost unknown there at that time. That was 25 years ago.
1: So, did you guys bring up the donation, or was that something that you guys were approached with?
3: No, we um, until that moment of Maggie saying that shouldn't we donate the organs. Everything had seemed. Black. I mean, there was no there was no good in it at all. Uh, But as soon as she said that, it was I I I saw some good could come out of this thing, Um, and so we asked the doctors. uh, We said we have something to to say. Um, We'd like to donate the organs. Uh, They, as I said, seemed very relieved. I mean, I think uh, surprised. Um, but from then on, it was all done very simply.
0: And where did you guys...
3: Uh, everything clicked into place.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. You guys are, are so strong. And I know that we just came up on the 25-year on the anniversary. But back then, um, not like now, donation is talked about. Um, how did you guys know about it to be so comfortable with it, to know that that was the choice, the right choice to leave that legacy?
3: Well, we never had a conversation about it, but you know, we as citizens, we we knew about it, and uh, I mean, you know, just as always seemed to uh, us both. Although we, I say, we didn't, we haven't talked about it. It always seemed that it was the the obvious thing to do. I mean, the 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 slogan is don't um, uh, don't uh, bury your organs. and uh that really has always seemed a great waste uh, uh to me uh, what we didn't know was of course just the extent of the um uh, of the good that uh, could come out of it um um in Nicholas's case there were seven uh, recipients um two corneas and uh five organs and uh, 25 years later, um, five of those seven are still leading uh, productive lives. So, I mean, that that itself was was an astonishing thing you know, to us. Uh, the, the other thing we didn't know about at that time was just um, how uh, scarce um, uh, donated organs were. And of the um, death rate on uh, on those waiting lists, that came as a totally new idea to me.
1: So, so, you know, and you talked about seven people's lives were touched, but then it, it's really much more than that. Countless more lives were touched because of Nicholas and because of the d- decision that you guys made. You know, there was a book written and a movie and and a foundation that touched so many others in so many countries. Basically, a global effect. Can you can and it actually won an award with the uh, AOPO, uh, and and you know it's something that I, I can you know, before we came on, I remember having many conversations just with other colleagues throughout the country about how much the Nicholas Effect touched them. So can you tell us about, you know, what inspired you to then take the next steps of going beyond those seven lives?
3: Yes, I'm a journalist and uh, I've worked much of my life on daily papers. Um, And uh, I'm very... Uh, aware that um, front page story on Monday is largely forgotten by Friday, um, uh, but um, the response, the initial response to uh, to Nicholas's death, all these um, uh, newspaper stories, all the interviews that uh, we were asked to give, showed us that um, we had a chance to. A more uh, la- to have more lasting effect um, than it would normally have done. So uh, we both kind of dedicated ourselves for the next two years to um, to telling as many people as possible in as many different ways as possible um, about the value of, of organ donation and uh, uh, about the um, the waste that there was now because of the shortage. I said two or three years because um, after that, um, we had twins. <laughs> um, I was reading about uh, we, we that. We wanted yeah. life to go on, mm. and um, um, Eleanor, who uh, very much loved her um, her elder brother, was now suddenly an only child, and we were uh, concerned that um, she might feel too lonely and uh, and that on our side you know we may uh, heap too much of the uh, of uh, affection on her would, uh, oh, um, yeah. to suffocate her oh. <laughs> we, felt we, we felt we needed uh, we needed to share this so the twins were born and all that. From then on, of course, Maggie was um, had uh, much less that she could do. And so I pretty well have run the show since then. Uh,
0: well, so just to get everybody on the same page, so that was back in 1994, Nicholas was seven he would be 32. So 25 years have passed. And I just want to pick your brain. I know that you're 90 now. So in those 25 years, some of the positive impacts, Nicholas Green's legacy, we know that more lives have been saved. We know that the uh, registry has had a positive impact because of his story. So can you walk us through what you think are are, are some of just the, the biggest positives, the legacy of your son?
3: Yeah, the, I mean the the, the most immediate uh, impact um, was in Italy, where uh, literally within weeks, organ donations went up 25%. Um, not just people signing cards, but actually you know, donating the organs. Um, it's hard to believe, but um, but it occurred. The uh, about three months, uh, he, he died on October first. And by the end of the year, uh, organ donations had risen uh, 25%. Now they went on rising um, for the next 10 years uh, so that in the end, donation rates were three times uh, as high as they were um, immediately before um, all this took place. So literally thousands of people are alive today who, who would have died. Um that uh, so it's perfectly clear what had happened in, in Italy. Around the world, of course, it's um it's less easy to see, but there's all sorts of empirical evidence to show that um uh, organ donation rates so uh, I mean in all the the um developed countries and a lot of the undeveloped ones as well, um, did see some increase um as a result of uh, uh, this story you, uh, joey i think mentioned that um being a movie made um i i wrote a book called the Nicholas effect 25000 copies of that uh, were sold and um uh, hospitals um um community groups uh, opo's uh, all over the us um have used that book as a um, to teach and to um and to gain uh motivation for um uh, for donations now um that book um was the basis for a movie a, a, a um made for t v movie one of them uh, on, on c b s um Movie of the week. It was shown um, and uh, was an instant um, uh, success. It went around the world and into this day. It pops up on cable news in India or um, South America or what. And um, so it's still changing minds in all these places. The the executive producer told me that um, 100 million people uh, around the world have seen it. And uh, we know that it um, changes minds wherever it's shown because um, people just send us emails and say that that they saw it.
0: Spurring those healthy conversations about donation is what we talk about here on the podcast. And, sir, you sure, certainly have, have done that through... Um... Through your son Nicholas, and I loved watching the the home movies, listening to him talk, and I loved how you were talking about his little freckles um, on his face. But just getting to know him um, through you guys, the way you guys talk about him, it, it's easy. Your storytelling is is amazing. Um, who wouldn't want to listen? Who wouldn't want to learn? Making that educated decision.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure there's so many lives you don't realize you have saved outside of. Nicholas's direct donation. I'm wondering if you've ever met any of the recipients.
3: Yes, um, um, I, I, you have to remember that it did; it just did create a sensation uh, in Italy, and uh, the result was that um, the uh, these people were known within days. The mayor of Rome himself telephoned us to tell that a boy from Rome uh, had received Nicholas's heart. Um, and uh, it, the, the other names uh, became known within the next day or two. That was unusual right from the beginning. Though they were just names to us at that time. And then a, um, a famous um, charity, it's called the Benino. Pulejo Foundation, named after two uh, uh, Sicilians, um, does a lot of very good work. They um, asked us to come back to to Sicily, um, which is where Nicholas died, um, to meet all the recipients. They would put on a conference uh, that would um, include us meeting the uh, all seven of them as it happened one of them was still in hospital at that time recovering he had a fairly hard time uh, before um, he was recovering well but um, his parents were very um, nervous about letting him out too soon so he was kept uh, in but we met the other six and um, it was done in front of um a battery of TV cameras and uh, and reporters from from kind of all the all the main newspapers and magazines, and they um, we weren't allowed to see them until a very traumatic mo- moment when the door opened and in they all came into this vast um, uh, arena where they, it was all taking place. And um, they were just the immediate families were there, the fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Uh, it was like an army. Some some crying, some laughing, some cheerful, some, some shy. And I think it was at that moment for the first time that I realized just the tremendous power that... Uh, one single decision uh, can be made that all those lives transformed. and I mean, not just their own, but all those of their their relatives and their grandfathers and grandmothers who would have been devastated, and cousins, their their friends, people they'll meet in life, people they'll marry, children they'll have, all that. Um, um, you know, just would the never have been.
2: just the ripple effect, and you know. Gave so many futures that day too,
1: and and I was gonna say you know in, in meeting that you know obviously how powerful that was for so many, and then years later, you met the Italian president, didn't you?
3: No, oh, right away. I mean before before we left uh, Italy that time, both the prime minister and the president, um, asked to see us, and um, they um, they it, it was done without without um, any reporters there it wasn't it wasn't a sort of photo op uh, for either of them they both saw us uh, separately um and um, as i said in my book i mean they treated as uh, not like uh, uh, leaders of their country but as old friends um uh, one one incident i I'll always remember from there um, the um the Prime Minister was Mr. Berlusconi, um, who was a very controversial figure. He loved and hated um, there. But with us, he was really a uh, kind of model of, um, of, uh, of of kindness and tact. Um, he um, he was very correct when we were discussing uh, all that had uh, happened and how he felt about it and so on. And then at the end, uh, we walked downstairs to where his car was waiting for us to take us to the airport. And uh, he, he said, uh, as we were getting in the car, may I, may I embrace you? Uh, and uh, I said, of course. And uh, as he put his cheek to mine, uh, I felt a cold tear run down his cheek. And so... I realized that he had been laboring under this great emotion that had kept it um, in, in, under control so as not to upset us further. And it's that kind of acts of, of kindness and uh, consideration that I uh, think of so many times when I'm reviewing this story in my mind.
0: You're such a great storyteller. I'm here just uh, taking it all in, but I can't help but feel like you and your wife are kind of ahead of your time um, and helping others, leading the way, like you were surprising the doctors with the decision you kind of knew uh, about donation. You wanted to leave a legacy for your son, and here we are 25 years later and this global impact that has been made because of the love for your son.
3: Yes, yes. I mean, the legacy we we think of, uh, of course, you know, it's, that it's, it's wonderful that so many people do know uh, Nicholas, but um, uh, the, the, it, it, it exists on two other levels for for Maggie and me. Again, although we don't talk about it very much, I'm, I'm sure she feels this way as well. But but one of them is, the, of course, the sheer saving of lives, and that's probably the most important. Um, as I mentioned, thousands of people. Um, so how do you measure that? But in in addition, it exists on another level, which is that of of people feeling um, sense of hope that uh, they didn't have before. Many people have written to us to say something like, um, "This story has has given me uh, hope for a gentler." Uh, kind of world world. and um, so one has the feeling that uh, I think I I said this at the time it sent an electric charge at the time through millions and millions of people and to to my astonishment as a daily journalist um, it's continued uh, to have that effect Nicholas uh, lit a spark of love in uh, in hearts all over the world.
0: Yes, and continues to do so. Thank you, Mr. Green, for sharing Nicholas with us and for giving so many hope.
1: And this time in our podcast, it's time to take a moment for mental health with Sarah.
2: Sarah, stressors. What are we talking about? Help. All right. So today we're going to talk about how to transform the way we think about stressors. So everybody has stress in their life. I'm stressing now. (laughs) You stress every time. (laughs) (laughs) But um, things really what we're going to do is when you have something that's stressing you out is to re think and retrain your brain to think of it not as something that can overwhelm you and bring you under, but can empower you and challenge you to be the best you can be. So this is a cognitive behavioral approach. So we're thinking about the way we think. Mm -hmm. So basically what we want to do is, first of all, understand that um, stress, yes, can make and stressors can make you fearful and they can bring you anxiety and feelings of um, not being worthy or good enough. But if we can retrain our brains to think about stress as a challenge and something that we can overcome, it'll be a good thing. And we can just improve the way that we look at stressors, which would reduce the stress in your life. <laughs> yep. Sounds easy to say.
0: It sounds easy.
1: <laughs> no, but a, a lot of times, you know, it does. It's, it's hard to be a better version of yourself mm-hmm. without addressing those stressors a lot of times. I get stressed out when I'm in speaking in public
2: right for Mm -hmm. instance and
1: (laughs) clearly (laughs) and and you know but but addressing that and understanding okay it's you know and I never go the uh you know just envision everybody naked thing because that never works either Mm -hmm. but I just I try to to tell myself look you know it's 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 not as big a deal as you making it Blah blah blah. blah." you know the information Mm -hmm. and and kind of address it in on that level now there's some stressors that I just there's no way I can get over Sure, like, like like you know, climbing a mountain, like you heights, know, like that's high, de- yeah. yeah. It and I'm not saying
2: everything that stresses you out or every stress in your life you can overcome because there are some things that you just can't. Everybody has you know fears, but it's more about challenging the negative thoughts about stress. So instead of if you have a stressor and all of your thoughts are you're going to fail, you're not going to do good, challenge that with something that's realistic. So like you said, public speaking, instead of saying, you know, I'm going to fail, I'm going to stutter, say, I know the information. I can do this, and no one's going to be paying as much attention to the little mistakes I make as in the big picture that I'm trying mm-hmm. to communicate. All right.
0: We're just coming off the holidays. I was stressed trying to get the house ready, food, mm-hmm. Christmas, doing all that stuff, and I just was a grump, a real grinch. I know it's hard to believe, right, <laughs> I see you. I see you there. But then I said, I'm going to I'm going to plaster a smile right here mm-hmm. to try to fake myself out. Didn't really work. But that, <laughs> in my little brain, like I was like, let me just smile. Like maybe smiling will help me get out of my funk.
2: Yeah. Which that's <laughs> I mean, that's you taking control of your thoughts and try, thoughts lead to better feelings and a more positive experience. So
0: that was the, we i can I'm do so still work on it. We can do we'll it. We'll talk, Sarah. We'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you have a topic you want Miss Sarah to cover. Info at the dot org. We'd love to hear from you. On every episode of the Gifted Life podcast, we honor a hero. We bring back our guest, Reg Green, to talk about his hero, Nicholas.
3: Well, Nicholas was seven years old and um, uh, a very gentle but very fun-loving and uh, interesting uh, uh, little boy. His teacher said uh, she always knew he was uh, her teacher. Um, he he would play, she said, with uh, other kids when no one else would, and so it seemed um, really um, uh, quite appropriate that even in death um, he continued uh, to give. He was a very bright boy uh, as well, um, very uh, interested in in history, and he. Uh, his, even the classics, um, when we were going to Italy, we played a number of games um, in which um, um, he was a Roman uh, soldier. Uh, going back to Rome after many years on the, on the frontiers of the Roman Empire, um, Hadrian's Wall in, uh, in uh, the north of England, and the Alps, uh, all places that he'd been. And uh, we told him that uh, in this story that when, when you get back to Rome, um, your name will be uh, known all over the world. Um, people will write poems about you. Um, you'll get a gold medal. And it all came true. with this difference that uh, uh, Nicholas uh, conquered not by the force of arms, but by the power of love. And that, of course, is much stronger.
1: And now we pause and say thank you to Nicholas for the gift of life.
0: In our question and answer segment today, are the rules for organ donation the same in countries outside of the U.S.? Joe, you want to take that
1: one? I will try. That's a very complex question with a multifaceted answer here. So (laughs) so I'm going to break it down into the three areas, main uh, differences and similarities. Uh, First, in allocation, because of the geographical and demographical makeup, things are, are very different. Uh, For instance, we interviewed uh, folks from Canada and they talked about their differences with the provinces. Everything is specific to that province. And then when they don't have a match in that province, then they call their friends in another province and see, okay, do you have someone to match it? Which was like we did it before UNOS, you know, before we've kind of fine tuned the the process of allocation that we've got now. And it's a little different in other European countries as well. Uh, From a preservation standpoint. It is also a little different. Uh, One of the differences uh, that we've got, again, with Canada, for instance, they have perfected some of the preservation machines much sooner than we have because we have a a lot more layers to go through with FDA approval and, uh, and they don't. So we learn a lot of what. Uh, from a preservation standpoint, a lot from them, and then and then the, the, the solutions themselves, uh, especially in Europe, uses a completely different solution to preserve the organs than than we do, uh, and then from the authorization standpoint, uh, ours is is much different, especially from from many of the countries in Europe, uh, in that. You know, for for us, we're we're first. It's first person. You know, and then and then we go to the next of kin to to uh, authorize. Whereas in some countries in Europe, such, such as Spain, led by Spain, is more of an opt out uh, situation where everyone is presumed uh, consent unless they unless the family opts out or the person opts out. So those areas are different, uh, but ultimately the donation process you know, after death, whether it's neurological death, brain death, or circulatory death, DCD, uh, is, is basically the same. The, the recoveries, uh, the, the, the the surgeries, the, you know, themselves are all the same, whether you go to Africa, Europe, Australia, or United States.
2: So ultimately, across the world, organ donation is viewed as a gift from one person to the other, and it's still an amazing thing. And if there's differences it still comes down to it's a gift to give. So it's really great. And um, if you do have any questions you'd like us to answer, email us at info at or give us a call at 504-648-3477 so we can play your message.
0: that'll do it for episode 125 of The Gifted Life, the first of the new year.
1: Yes, it is. And a special thanks to Reg Green for sharing the story of Nicholas Green with us. What a powerful story. What a great storyteller he was. Oh, my
0: gosh. And just uh, the love that you can still feel that they have for their son. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted him to have a legacy. They wanted to save more lives. And they wanted to make the world a kinder place. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right. So hopefully that inspires you to take action. Um, if you aren't signed up to be an organ, tissue and eye donor, you can do that now. registerme.org dot org. Talk about one person making a difference, one couple making a difference. Uh, just an amazing, an amazing story.
2: And the best place to find us is at our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to our podcast there or on anywhere you listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple or Google or Spotify. And when you do listen, please leave us a five-star rating so that others can find us. All right, guys, on social media, like our
0: page, Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. There we'll feature um, the other guests that join us here on The Gifted Life. Our goal is to spur those healthy conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. You are part of our team. You are helping us make life happen. What we want to do is save more lives, right? Um, And we need you to do that. So please share and go out and do something that you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen in this new year. Talk to you soon. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.